0: To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit eiu.com.
1: The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Israel has managed to keep its airspace open and flights coming and going, even as the conflict in Gaza has deepened. Our correspondent explains how it's done so safely and why it simply has to. And spare a thought for delivery drivers in China. The pay is bad, the hours can be worse. They can actually get fined for a late delivery. Small-scale street protests to improve their lot are going quiet. Now it's all about industrial action on the down low. First, British politics hasn't been short on surprises in recent years. And yesterday, a doozy.
2: Car, coming up number 10,
3: Downing Street, I should say. I'm not quite sure who this might be. That's the security
1: detail just opening the door for David Cameron. David Cameron. Cameron. What?
3: Wait. I was not expecting <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that! Okay.
1: To the amazement of Sky News reporters and almost everyone else in the country, the current Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, appointed the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, as Foreign Secretary. It's seven years since Mr Cameron, with quivering lip, resigned after putting the thorny issue of Brexit to a public vote.
0: I was absolutely clear about my belief that Britain is stronger, safer and better off inside the European Union. But the British people have made a very clear decision to take a different path. And as such, I think the country requires fresh leadership to take it in this direction.
1: The country has not remembered him kindly. In a YouGov poll in 2019, he topped the list of the most disliked politicians. But here's the thing, Mr. Sunak is trailing by 20 points in the polls ahead of an election next year. He had a loose cannon of a home secretary whose central immigration policy is stuck in the courts with dim prospects, who's been calling homelessness a lifestyle choice, and who's fed right-wing vitriol against pro-Palestinian marches.
4: I have made my views clear. These are hate marches.
1: So Mr. Sunak fired her, prompting a shuffle at the top of government. But this well, this just isn't a good look.
3: Rishi Sunak is pretty desperate at the moment. He's basically so far behind that almost anything is worth trying.
1: Duncan Robinson is The Economist's political editor and writes Badget, our column on British politics.
3: And so one of the things which has done is bring back former Prime Minister David Cameron as Foreign Secretary, which was a really surprising move and one that hasn't happened in a, a very long time. It's very rare for former prime ministers to come back and serve in
1: government. So let's wind back a bit. How did this appointment actually come about?
3: So Rishi Sunak has spent the past few weeks basically having a row with his Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, and on Monday he finally fired her because they'd been clashing too much. This created a vacancy as Home Secretary which was filled by the current Foreign Secretary, a man called James Cleverly. So he's moved from the best and easiest job in government of Foreign Secretary to the worst and hardest job of Home Secretary. That left the plum job of Foreign Secretary empty and to be frank there's not much talent within the Conservative Party at the moment. There's not a huge number of statesman like MPs. And so Rishi Sunak took the extraordinary step of inviting David Cameron back into the role of Foreign Secretary. And to do that, the king had to make David Cameron a lord due to the peculiarities of the British constitution. So you have to be in parliament to be a minister, but you don't necessarily have to be in the House of Commons, which is the elected bit. And so David Cameron became a baron.
1: I'm intrigued. Why do you call Foreign Secretary the best and easiest job in government?
3: It is the best job because it's got a lot of status. You fly around the world, you meet important people, you meet interesting people, and you sort of float slightly above politics. There's no petty mudslinging when it comes to foreign policy. Labour and the Conservatives try and sort of work together. And bluntly, if something goes wrong, it's rarely your fault. Whereas it's the direct opposite of that in the Home Office. Everything is always your fault. Everything is constantly going wrong and Home Secretaries are extremely lucky to survive a very long time in that role.
1: So give us a little history lesson here. Remind us about the last time Mr Cameron was in office as Prime Minister.
3: So David Cameron styled himself as a liberal conservative. He tried to turn the Conservative Party from, quote, the nasty party into a more sort of thoughtful liberal one. There was a... Much mocked, but quite sincere campaign, nicknamed Hug a Hoodie by the press. It was about sort of taking, you know, disaffected youths and giving them a a place in society. For young people,
0: hoodies are often more defensive rather than offensive. They're a way to stay invisible in the street.
3: And one of the other main achievements of David Cameron's tenure was gay marriage, which was opposed by a majority of Tory MPs at that point, but he sort of pushed it through.
0: So I don't support gay marriage in spite of being a conservative. I support gay marriage because I am a conservative.
3: So in one sense, David Cameron was a, a relatively liberal prime minister, but in another, he was quite right-wing, quite Thatcherite, extremely fiscally conservative, quite hardline on immigration. So he was this curious mix of ostensibly being quite liberal, but in reality being relatively right-wing. So David Cameron was prime minister for six years, from 2010 until 2016. And in that time, they started pushing on with the Brexit referendum. And then things really went rather wrong from that point onwards.
1: So it doesn't sound like you would assess Mr Cameron's tenure as a good one.
3: No, I think David Cameron will be remembered for two things. He will be remembered for austerity and for Britain leaving the EU. Now, austerity was a deliberate choice. It was a radical experiment, this idea that Britain could manage with a much smaller state to have lower taxes as well. And neither of those things were really sustainable, and the effects of that are still being felt now. Britain's got a much bigger state because people do want and need various public services, and taxes haven't gone up to pay for that state. And so effectively, there is no economic legacy that David Cameron has left behind. And the other big legacy is Britain's departure from the EU. And David Cameron gambled on a referendum on the EU and he lost and the country paid the price.
1: And so what has Mr Cameron actually been up to in the interim?
3: So David Cameron made a big show when he was Prime Minister, of saying he would always stay on as an MP if he stopped being Prime Minister. And in fact, that wasn't true. He spent eight weeks as a backbench MP under Theresa May and then quit. And then he became a private citizen. He had various charity endeavours. He worked with Alzheimer's charity, but he had various money-making endeavours that were not particularly successful. And so when he did crop up in the press, it was because the company that he'd become involved in, a company called Greensill, had collapsed in a very embarrassing fashion. And so David Cameron has not had a particularly edifying career outside of politics since leaving.
1: Well, by your reckoning, it wasn't a very edifying career in politics either. So why bring back someone with this pairing of tainted legacies?
3: So there's two ways of looking at it. So from Sunak's point of view, anything is worth a go at this moment. There are some voters who might have relatively fond memories of David Cameron. And those are the voters that the Conservative Party are desperate to keep in the sort of prosperous southeast of England. So these are people who were sort of wavering between the Tory party and the Lib Dems. And if David Cameron comes back, who they didn't really hate, then that might be one reason to stay. And from David Cameron's point of view... It is something to talk about that isn't his ten years as as prime ministership, which lots of people thought was pretty terrible, and isn't his various business shenanigans that have gone not very well. So if he goes down in history as a moderately competent foreign secretary, people will say, "Oh, maybe David Cameron wasn't that bad." So there's something in it for both of them, but I'm not sure the strategy is necessarily going to pay off because those same voters that David Cameron supposedly appeals to are generally fed up with the Tories because of Brexit. And many of those voters will blame David Cameron for Brexit having happened. And so I'm not sure there'll be much political benefit for the Conservatives when they're coming back.
1: But stepping away from Mr. Cameron specifically, what does this this whole affair and the shuffle around in the Cabinet tell you about the Conservatives besides a certain whiff of desperation?
3: It means there'll be another scrap between the far right of the party and the centre of it. So Suella Braveman will try and cause as much trouble as she possibly can from the backbenches. You've had a few MPs putting in letters of no confidence in Mr Sunak. And so we may end up back in a situation where Tories are just scrapping among themselves rather than sort of projecting a, a, an image of cool, calm, competent government, which they're trying to at the moment. So there will be a lot of shenanigans in the coming weeks.
1: Duncan, thanks very much for your time.
3: Thanks very much for having me.
0: Navigate an ever changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries, with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices, and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit
1: eiu.com. Since Hamas's attacks of October 7th, 90% of flights to Israel have been suspended, including those of carriers such as British Airways and Emirates. And the FAA is warning the US airlines to use extreme caution in Israeli airspace. Hamas has has repeatedly fired rockets at Israel's largest airport, Ben-Gurion. CNN's Nick Robertson landed at Ben-Gurion Airport to the sound of bombs raining down in the distance. And yet, Israeli airspace is open, and airports have continued to operate commercial flights. They have
4: to. Israel really needs its airports now more than ever. Benjamin Sutherland writes about security for The Economist. A lot of reservists had to be flown back to Israel in preparation for the invasion of Gaza. You've got diplomats and negotiators being flown in. You've got a lot of cargo coming in. And then there's a societal morale. You've got families of victims killed in the Hamas attack of October 7th and families of hostage victims spirited away to Gaza. So, in fact, a Israeli aviation official I spoke to described grounding flights essentially as like closing our only oxygen line.
1: Yet it remains dangerous for Israel to continue operating its airports, is it not?
4: Well, the threat of strikes is real. In October, Hamas unveiled a homemade anti-aircraft missile called Mutabar-1. It's also received foreign-made shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles, but all of those are thought to have a short range, probably about eight kilometers or so. However, Hamas does have a large arsenal of rockets, and the range of those rockets has steadily increased. In 2011, when Israel started operating its Iron Dome rocket defense system, The range of Hamas's rockets was probably about 20 kilometers. Today, it's about 170. And the precision of those rockets, while not great, certainly has improved. So as you say, there are
1: pragmatic needs and I guess almost psychological, political, societal needs for Israel to keep its airports open. What has it been doing before this conflict to make sure that's the case?
4: Well, commercial aircraft have always been kept about 80 kilometers from Gaza. Israel has been firing its Iron Dome interceptors since the system opened in 2011. Another adaptation is that airlines have been given instructions to adjust their flight routes. And so aircraft coming from Europe and the United States now enter Israeli airspace much more to the north, just south of Haifa before turning south to descend towards Tel Aviv and Angorian airport, and the idea there is that that keeps those aircraft over areas where there's fewer cities, less population, which gives Iron Dome freer range to fire interceptors. But it also means that if an interceptor is headed towards an aircraft, there's enough time—about 90 seconds at least—for the pilot to be given a clear instruction to take an evasive maneuver and get even farther out of the way. Another. Part of the picture is that you have civilian and military air traffic controllers operating often in the same rooms in cooperation, sometimes looking at the same shared screens, which helps give extra time for pilots to be told to move their aircraft out of the way if a barrage of rockets is heading in that direction.
1: And have any additional procedures or protections been put in place since the start of this most recent conflict?
4: Yes, Israel's Civil Aviation Authority has told airlines they need to carry more fuel. And in fact, that's actually come in handy already. Some aircraft headed for Ben-Gurion Airport have been put into holding patterns for up to 50 minutes, I was told by an aviation official, due to incoming rocket fire. And they were able to continue that holding pattern and then land later at Ben-Gurion when it was safe without needing to be diverted for an emergency landing elsewhere. The time aircraft spended is Israeli airports has been shortened dramatically, so that means accelerating boarding procedures, shortening the cleaning of the aircraft, and speeding up the refueling. And the idea is that the less time people spend in the aircraft on the tarmac, the means more time they're spending in the terminal, which has bomb shelters, and Ben Gurion Airport has also moved all of its traffic to Terminal 3, which is the most recently built terminal, and it's more hardened against rocket strikes you have fewer aircraft on the tarmac and you need to put the birds up in the air quickly because there's incoming rockets they can do that whereas typically there's about 10 or 11 airliners on the tarmac loaded getting ready to take off at any time now they've got that number down to about four so they can clear them out in less time if needed
1: And as we've said before, given how things are going in Gaza, it looks as though the war could last for really quite some time. Do you think that Israel is likely to do anything to expand the number of commercial flights that are coming through?
4: I would say that certainly demand is going to be accumulating for additional flights. And of course, the need for spare parts for factories is only going to grow. The big question is if Israel, of course, can continue to keep the airspace open without an accident. That's quite a big if Hezbollah, a bigger militia based in southern Lebanon, has threatened to rain thousands of rockets on Israel, and the group's leader has boasted that its rockets can hit Ben-Gurion Airport. One indication of just how incredibly amazing Israel's ability to keep its airspace open is Consider that in Beirut, Lebanon's capital to the north, a number of flights have already been canceled. Middle East Airlines, Lebanon's flagship carrier has already moved some of its aircraft out of Lebanon, basing them in other countries. And so this really is a startling display of both competence and just the need to keep Israel connected to the outside world. In fact, an Israeli aviation official with whom I spoke said that if Israel pulls this off, he has indications from Poland, Ukraine, and some other foreign delegations that will be visiting Israel later to learn how they did it. And so there's a lot of interest elsewhere in the world to learn how Israel is pulling this off.
1: Benjamin, thanks very much for your time.
4: Oh, of course. Thank you.
2: China's food delivery drivers have a lot to complain about. It's not just the long days, the bad weather, and the traffic accidents.
1: Gabriel Crossley is a China correspondent for The Economist and is based in Beijing.
2: The apps they work for promise turnaround so fast that they are forced to speed and they get fined for arriving late. All of this is done for as little as just 5 yuan per delivery. That's about 68 cents. But a new study suggests that labor activism for better working conditions among delivery drivers is more widespread than previously thought. And they're using quieter tactics than you might expect as well.
1: So before we get on to the quieter tactics, you mentioned what have delivery drivers been doing more openly to try to improve their conditions?
2: Drivers and couriers have been pressing for better wages and working conditions by going on strike and demonstrating in public spaces. They all wear these very colourful uniforms in blue and yellow, so they make quite a big visual impact. In the past five years, China Labour Bulletin, which is an NGO in Hong Kong, has tracked around 400 of these protests by delivery drivers. All of this isn't easy. Troublemakers can just get cut out of deliveries so or otherwise pushed out of the system. But a new study suggests that some drivers are using methods that the public can't see to put pressure on their bosses.
1: And what methods are those?
2: So this study's by Bo Zhao and Siti Law at Fudan and Sun senator Universities. One of the authors spent 18 months working as a delivery driver in southern China, and they said during this stint they witnessed five small-scale mini-strikes. All of these happened out of the public eye. So rather than taking to the streets, upset drivers simply logged out of the app that assigns deliveries during a period like lunchtime when demand is very high, and that's the worst possible time for the delivery companies they work for. This causes delays to quickly snowball, angers the restaurants that do takeouts, makes the customers angry too, and eventually it forces the company to reject further orders.
1: And how did the driver's taskmasters respond to that?
2: Well, according to the study, even just knowing that drivers can do this causes some supervisors to bend the rules on, say, when drivers get fined. So sometimes they can get fined for all sorts of minor infractions, like putting a delivery outside someone's door instead of giving it to them personally, that kind of thing. Another piece of research found that these sort of mini strikes were quite effective in convincing contractors to slightly increase the pay per order. So they're somewhat effective, but it still helps when the public gets involved. Two. In 2021, a company called Ulama, which is responsible for a great deal of these deliveries, offered to only pay 2,000 yuan, which is about $270, in compensation to the family of a delivery worker who died on the job. This caused a huge backlash on social media, and eventually the company agreed to cough up 600,000 yuan.
1: So this is a battle going on between the drivers and the delivery companies, with public opinion weighing in a bit. But what about the government? Is this the nail that sticks out, gets hammered kind of situation as far as the government's concerned?
2: Yeah, after the public backlash in 2021, the government demanded delivery companies improve working conditions. It was responding a bit to this public pressure as well. But China Labour bulletin, the NGO says little has actually changed on the ground, and One thing the Chinese government doesn't want is more ambitious, more organized labor activism. This kind of activism probably would lead to more gains for workers, but it's not going to happen. So small, quiet victories like this might be the best drivers can hope for.
1: Gabriel, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let me draw your attention to just one of the great shows you're missing if you haven't yet signed up for Economist Podcasts Plus. Yesterday, the latest episode in our series Boss Class on what exactly makes for a good manager tackled the question of meetings, how to run them, and perhaps more importantly, when not to have them at all. To listen to Boss Class, all of our weekly shows, and of course, The Weekend Intelligence, head to the show notes to get a free 30-day subscription to Economist Podcasts Plus. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Businesses have long had to cope with the impact of business cycles. Now, they must address not just cycles, but cyclones. Storms spin up seemingly out of nowhere, irrespective of the ups and downs of the overall economy. Read what global executives are doing to mitigate these risks and seize their opportunities in the 5th Annual Alex Partners Disruption Index at disruption.alexpartners.com.